Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind the scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. From KQED. San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood is a complicated place. It's located right in the center of the city, bordered by some of the wealthiest neighborhoods, and yet it stands in stark contrast. It's the neighborhood tourists are told not to walk through. It has a reputation for having drug dealing out in the open. Parts can be dirty, and the crime rate is high. Growing up, like we always knew like the TL is kind of like a more seedy place. This is today's question asker, V. We spoke with her in 2018. She's lived in the Bay Area since she was a kid, but moved to the Tenderloin three years ago. At first, she saw the Tenderloin like a lot of people do. But over time, she's come to appreciate its good food and community. When I first started living here, I definitely did feel less safe walking by myself. Um, I think now that I've been here for a while, I feel comfortable walking at least during the day. V noticed that while most of San Francisco is getting fancier and more expensive, that isn't the case in her neighborhood. I mean, sure. Like, you'll see, like, some shops and stuff that open up, and you do see some young people that live here. But for the most part, the Tenderloin hasn't developed like the rest of the city. She's curious. Why is the Tenderloin so resistant to gentrification when the rest of San Francisco isn't? This is Big Curious. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Today, we hit the streets of the Tenderloin with a few longtime residents. We want to know, how has this neighborhood stayed so affordable next to so many neighborhoods that haven't? This episode first aired in May 2018, but it's a question that is still relevant today. We do have an update at the end on a few new developments that have happened since the story first ran. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. 
To answer Fee's question, we head to the Tenderloin with reporter Kelly O'Mara. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Olivia. So for this story, we're going to have to talk about gentrification, which can mean a lot of things to different people. We'll get to that in a minute. First, to understand the Tenderloin now, we need to understand how it was before. So let's take a step back in time. The neighborhood was once the place to be. During the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, people came from all over to visit the Tenderloin's restaurants, jazz clubs, and bars. Even during Prohibition, the party raged on in underground speakeasies. People came to the movie theaters in mid-market, and then they ate dinner or went to the bars in the Tenderloin. That's Randy Shaw. He's been working in the Tenderloin since 1980, when he started the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. The Tenderloin from 1907 into the 50s was one of those prosperous San Francisco neighborhoods. Part of what made the neighborhood lively was not exactly legal. For a long time, the city looked the other way on gambling parlors and brothels. Every great city of the world seems to have an area given over to the fleshly needs of men. In San Francisco, this area is called the Tenderloin. So, yeah, there was some illegal stuff going on. Still, the neighborhood thrived on both legal and illegal entertainment. But then it all came crashing down. City Hall intentionally wrecked the Tenderloin. They eliminated our gambling operation, which they had to do. They changed our street configuration. They took away our cable cars. In the 1950s, San Francisco started cracking down on the Tenderloin's quasi-legal businesses. A lot of the movie theaters in nearby mid-market closed too. Famous recording studios shuttered. And without businesses or foot traffic, crime and drug dealing filled some of that void. And the Tenderloin became a pass-through neighborhood. Everything was geared toward how do we get people to Union Square, and we don't care what happens between Union Square and Civic Center. The Tenderloin got left behind. But many of the people who lived there found a community in this ignored neighborhood. In the 60s and 70s, the Tenderloin was a haven for gay and lesbian San Franciscans. They also found an affordable place to live. Tons of the Tenderloin's hotels had long ago been repurposed. And what the people did was they started renting them out to low-income people or people that just needed a week's rent. So they became sort of low-income housing. Pam Coates has lived in the Tenderloin for nine years in an SRO, a single-room occupancy residential hotel. We caught up with her in the neighborhood. It's a room, usually with a shared bath, and a little, you know, you've got a wash basin in it, and that's it. No cooking facilities at all. You have to sort of make your own. They might not be the nicest places, but they often offer a second chance for recovering addicts, domestic abuse survivors, and people getting off the streets. People like coats. I was on the street for 10 months. I'm a domestic violence survivor. I had a good worker at the GA office, general assistance, and I was a good worker. And I got in, in I got into Tenderloin, um, to the SRO, through the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. So that's how I found peace. This neighborhood offers that. It's, it is new beginnings. By the 1980s, the money pouring into San Francisco was changing nearby neighborhoods. Tenderloin residents started to worry about preserving what they had, that chance for a new beginning, even if the neighborhood had its problems, too. They started to organize. The Tenderloin is really a model for how communities across the country can stop gentrification. There's that word, gentrification. What do we mean by it? 
Well, for our purposes here, we're focusing on the cost of housing and the residents' ability to stay in their homes. And in terms of housing, the Tenderloin is relatively affordable, although it's still San Francisco prices. A one-bedroom here rents for about $1,000 less than the rest of the city. And a rent-controlled SRO can cost as little as a few hundred dollars a month. Although that's affordable, most people aren't exactly excited to share a bathroom or live without a kitchen. And the Tenderloin just doesn't have many single-family homes. Okay, so there are some policy reasons the Tenderloin hasn't really gentrified. Number one. There was an aggressive nonprofit acquisition of land when land was still cheap. Nonprofits have held on to that land and property they bought long ago. And today, a lot of them run affordable housing programs on that property. Number two. In 1985, we rezoned the neighborhood to prevent any building over 13 stories. Someone could not pick up a piece of land and build a 35-story luxury condominium in the Tenderloin because the zoning prohibits it. These limits make it unappealing for developers who have to weigh the cost of building with the potential for profit. Number three, the city made it very hard to get rid of SROs and their tenants. And the Tenderloin has more SROs than any other neighborhood in San Francisco. We now have all of this housing stock, which again is protected for a low income. The gentry don't want to move into a room without a kitchen or private bath. So SROs are pretty immune to gentrification. Number four, much of the neighborhood is a historic district, which comes with its own restrictions. Again, making any new development difficult. Now all of those policies add up. And today, between 25 and 29% of the housing units are designated permanently affordable. Their goal, I think, was to protect the neighborhood from the, the speculative real estate market. Jeff Buckley, the mayor's housing policy advisor, says the neighborhood's residents largely succeeded. There just haven't been as many people forced out of their homes as in other parts of the city. We have seen, whether it's the Ellis Act or the owner move-ins or the no-fault evictions that have occurred uh, at uh, fairly high rates throughout San Francisco in the last 20 years, they have not happened in the Tenderloin. All of that sounds good, but the Tenderloin still has some long-standing problems. Last year, the Tenderloin had more violent crime than almost any other neighborhood in San Francisco, though it is dropping. And drug dealing is still common, especially on certain street corners. In fact, when I was walking to meet Shaw, someone tried to sell me morphine. Many residents aren't happy with the crime and are trying to help clean up the streets. The first thing that business owners in the neighborhood wanted were clean streets. So they established a program called Clean City. Coates leads historical walking tours to show people what they're missing in the Tenderloin. She says there are signs of change here. New clubs and bars have opened where, if you're lucky, you might see her sing. And for me, that's great because I perform at Piano Fight, I perform at the museum and the jazz club and various other places around here. The city is working on its own improvement projects, too. Joaquin Torres is deputy director at the city's Office of Economic and Workforce Development. We've attracted over 40 new businesses to the neighborhood, 15 arts organizations, uh, 10 existing uh, arts organizations being stabilized. The city is installing a bunch of new streetlights. The neighborhood's main park was remodeled. There's a new history museum and after-school programs. Three major housing projects are coming in on Market Street in the next few years. And there's been some fancier restaurants opening, like the Black Cat Jazz Club. Nicer parks, new businesses, more housing. This all sounds like it could lead to gentrification. I actually asked Torres about that. Can you improve it 
without gentrifying and forcing people out. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the vision that we're implementing right now. It's it's an opportunity to have um, a truly uh, mixed and diverse uh, neighborhood. Shaw from the Tenderloin Housing Clinic says he meets a lot of skeptics who say it's not possible to get rid of the crime and keep the neighborhood affordable. I've had people say to me, well, the drug dealing keeps gentrification away. That should be the price of it. But he disagrees. He thinks the 31,000 residents who live here shouldn't have to pay that price. Okay, Kelly, this episode aired almost two years ago, and there were a lot of exciting plans at the time, but it sounds like not all of them really panned out. Unfortunately, no. A lot of the stuff that was projected to open last year hit delays and issues. I went back to Randy Shaw and asked him about it. The Tenderloin is a neighborhood where having vacant areas has been it just very, very, very problematic. And he says having so many vacant buildings attracts more crime and more drug dealing. I would say that if you interviewed a random people of Tenderloin, 99% would say the Tenderloin got worse in 2019. I think there's pretty much a consensus. 2019 was the roughest year the Tenderloin had experienced in some time. He also says as other parts of the city have gentrified even more, it sort of pushed the problems into the Tenderloin. And I guess a lot of those new restaurants and housing projects that were supposed to open in the last year didn't? That's the bad news. The good news is some of those things are finally happening now. The City Department of Homelessness started moving into a vacant building last month. Hastings Law School opens a spot this spring. A few nonprofits and restaurants are now opening. And this May, people are expected to start moving into one of those new housing projects we talked about on Market Street. But there is also a group of residents who are still concerned all of this will displace longtime residents. So in a lot of ways, the story hasn't changed that much at all. I guess we're going to be ending this update with the same question that we did last time, which is, can the TL get new developments and safer streets without forcing out current residents? We'll keep an eye on it. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks. Today's story was reported from the Tenderloin by Kelly Amara. Thanks to V, our question asker this week, and to Randy, Pam, and Jeff for helping us tell the story. Since this episode was on the long side, we're taking a break from hearing your love letters to the Bay Area this week. But we'll be back with a bigger collection for you next week. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. I'm Olivia Allen-Price. Thanks for listening. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. 
you can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.